0: plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: GM, I'm Dan Roberts.
2: And I'm Jeff Roberts.
1: And this is
2: GM GM from from Decrypt. Decrypt.
1: Okay, Jeff, we're going to have Caitlin Long on the show, someone we've wanted to have on for a while.
2: Yeah, GM, Dan, this is a good get. I've known Caitlin for years, and she is hands down one of the smartest people in crypto. It's also cool. She's a former banker. She's like 20 years on Wall Street, so she knows traditional finance deeply. And that's what makes it even cooler that she broke away to start Avanti, her stablecoin company in Wyoming that has big plans to be a bank. And it also has a new name, which I'm sure we'll get into.
1: Yeah, and of course, we had her earlier this month at our event in Wyoming, And when she arrived, I mean, she drove to the event from a different event. You could see right away she came into the room and everyone kind of snapped to attention. People know her. People think of her as an authority. And it fits the great streak I think we've had going of having real OGs on the
2: program. Yeah, you know she's an, she's a banker. I think she might be a lawyer too. She knows Washington really well, but also she's been deep in crypto for a while. She's a, uh, I heard a rumor she's a Bitcoin maxi. We'll have to press her on that.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it's also great too because we're following up Andrew Yang with Caitlin Long, and even though as you said she's launching basically a crypto bank. And I'm sure we'll talk about the banking world. She also is very much Dow associated. I mean, we talked about how Wyoming has kind of become the DAO state. That's largely due to Caitlin Long, you know, pushing for DAOs to be recognized as legal entities in the state.
2: Yeah, that's true. Wyoming is an interesting place. It's a small population, but an outsized influence in the crypto world. But anyways, should we bring her on? Let's do it. We'll bring her on. Caitlin Long.
1: All right, Caitlin Long, GM, welcome.
3: Hey, how are you guys?
1: Great, thanks for joining us.
3: It's my honor. Yeah. We got to hang
1: out with you earlier this month in Wyoming. And
3: we Indeed. definitely want to
1: get into what's going on in Wyoming. We kind of think of it as the Dow State But let's just start by letting you tell our listeners what you're up to with Custodia, rebranded from Avanti Financial. The launch is coming soon. What does the company do?
3: Well, we're here to solve a problem, which is the lack of banking services that serve the digital asset industry, broadly speaking. This has been a problem that we've known about, that the state of Wyoming heard a lot of testimony about dating back to 2017, when there were mass closings of bank accounts of both individuals and legitimate businesses in this industry because the banks just didn't want to touch it for risk reasons. And it's it's still a problem today. There, there are definitely a few banks that broke through, chose to take all the, the licks from the regulators for serving what's deemed to be a high risk industry, but it's still an issue. I just talked yesterday to someone who who's trying to get three bank accounts for his business. And just because of the risk of you know, being debanked by one or two of them, he wants three, and he can only find two. So there are a lot of folks waiting for us to launch. And yep, we're, uh, we announced that we're launching in Q2. We don't have a specific date yet. So stay tuned.
2: Um, Hey, Caitlin, it's Jeff. Just for context here, in terms of like banking services, it's sort of like the cannabis industry here in my state of Colorado or the gambling industry. If you're in this business, a lot of conventional banks will get cold feet and just sort of cut you off out of the blue and you're suddenly a business without a bank. That's sort of the problem the crypto industry faces, right?
3: Ingo. And in fact, if you're a business without a bank, you're not a business in the United States because the IRS requires you to remit your withholding taxes electronically through your bank. If you can't do that, you're not a business. So yeah, this is, this is an issue. There, there were about 30 industries that were caught up in this debanking wave in the middle part of the last decade. And it's, there are definitely vestiges of it. And it comes down to the way the banking regulatory capital works. There are in certain industries that are deemed to be high risk And really what you see is that you mentioned, for example, the cannabis industry, the gaming industry, there are banks that specialize in serving those industries. And that's exactly what's happened to us because it's, it's, it's deemed to be too high risk for banks to dabble in it. So you're either in it in a very big way and you specialize or you're just not in it at all. And that's what we saw in 2017, where most of the banks, there was a, there was a compliance bulletin that went out in the fall of 2017 to all the, Banks from one of the federal bank regulators. And most of the banks ended up just closing bank accounts en masse at that time. They were asked to do a, a review, a Know Your Customer review of their customers. And, um, and most of them decided just to close en masse. And what we heard it back in, this was back when the Wyoming legislator, legislature was getting going with the efforts in Wyoming, we heard a lot of entrepreneurs come and talk about how they couldn't get a backup bank account fast enough. Because there were only a couple of banks that were serving the industry, and it was towards the end of the year, and they were pretty full on their on their quotas and their capacity to onboard customers at that point, and so a lot of legitimate startups went out of business. It's actually quite sad. So it's a real problem, and we're trying to solve it.
2: And just real quickly, so the reality is, though, you know, that if you want to go your crypto company and you want to bank, it's Silver Lake's kind of the main player, right? Or who else is out there? How does that work?
3: Yeah, Silvergate and Signature are the biggest ones. And last I looked, there's about eighty billion dollars of deposit capacity between the two of them. There are a couple others that are dabbling, but uh, you know, not really dabbling, but just relatively small. But in aggregate, what, it, what is $80 billion? It's, it's compared to an industry with give or take $2 trillion in asset value. I don't know of another industry that has that small a US dollar banking services available to it. It's, it's really lopsided. And of course, our industry is growing pretty fast. And the US dollar deposit capacity is not Growing as fast, so it's it's an issue, and we're you know we went through a debanking wave. It seems like every four years you go through a debanking wave, (laughs) and we're we're going through it again. I'm hearing anecdotes, And, and in fact, actually, if you take the the federal bank regulators at their word, we've seen speeches from two of the three federal banking agencies talking about cracking down on the so called bank as a service or rent a charter arrangements. And I'm hearing through the grapevine that that's exactly what's happening. And so I think this is, uh, there's another ba- wave of debanking happening in our industry. And Custodia can't get open fast enough.
1: That sounds like a good story for us at Decrypt. I'm glad, Caitlin, that Jeff brought up you know the gaming industry. Specifically for years, I covered the rise of fantasy sports and then sports betting oh. and also cannabis because I, I often link those three. I do the same thing. I say you know it seems like they're all kind of facing the same problem with bank accounts. Now things have changed a little bit, though. And it's a great order to have you on after we did uh, Andrew Yang on this podcast, because he was talking about using DAOs in Web3 in DC, but he said you still have to also merge them with the old fashioned way. And we asked him, you know, do you feel like you can't lead with crypto in DC? And I see that from politicians who are pro crypto, you, you kind of can't make that your main stumping point because you get kind of. Um, you know, framed as a, a crypto crazy. And I guess what I'm asking is, you know, in some ways, those three industries have had similar problems, in some ways different. Do you feel like the reputation among the banking world, among D.C. has improved and is improving? Or it's still, you know, there are certain people who the minute you say, well, we want to do crypto services, mm, uh, we don't want anything to do with that.
3: It's a little of both. And and by the way, it, it'll just continue. We're, we're, we're seeing, I just saw, for example, Bill Gross just announced that he's done a 180 from being a skeptic to a supporter and actually own, came out and announced that he owns Bitcoin. That's just today. We, it seems like every day we're seeing more and more and more of those. I was listening to a podcast yesterday that Nick Carter had done with Isabella Kaminska, who did the Alphaville column at the FT, very big critic. And now she's starting, the ice is starting to melt for her uh, as well, which is, I'm always interested in those stories. Why did somebody go from being a big critic to being a supporter? And we just are seeing it over and over and over again. But that said, there will be people who, uh, frankly don't understand what this technology is. And so they call for banning Bitcoin or banning crypto. And we all know that's not possible, but it, it just frankly reveals a lot about the lack of curiosity and research that folks who say that. Have but there are folks, of course, that do say that and are trying to to do that and and so sure, there's still an education in Washington D.C. But what I was just there last week and and one of the things that I did, having met with the staffers in various Congress people and Senate's offices on both sides of the aisle, we're definitely seeing a bipartisan group that is forming and and it's strange bedfellows it's you know senator lomas who's more on the libertarian republican side with you know sen- she teamed up with senator wyden who's more on the progressive democrat side back in the uh, with in in the infrastructure bill issue last summer and you're going to see i think i, I know you're going to see more of those Seemingly strange bedfellows, but it's, in fact, it's not strange at all. They're coming together to support a technology that is being blocked uh, uh, through the regulatory process, and and by incumbents who you know may not exactly have, uh, who may not obje- exactly be objective about this. And and you're seeing, you know, the mainstream folks in in both political parties that are big, you know, recipients of of incumbent banks' political contributions, you're seeing them uh, oftentimes the ones who are the biggest critics. They're not exactly um, objective, shall we say.
2: Right. Yeah. No, the bank lobby in D.C. certainly seems to have a hold on certain senators and congressmen. And I want to talk some more D.C. shortly. But before we do that, I want to go back to what custodia, formerly Avanti, is doing exactly. If I understand right, You're going to be a new option for crypto companies that need a bank, but Avanti I always knew was kind of a would be stablecoin player. They wanted to come into the stablecoin game, so just kind of bring that together. What's what is what is Custodia going to do that others don't do already, and what's the role of the stablecoin in this?
3: Yeah, same same business plan, just different name. So we start with the basic building block, which is U.S. dollar services, and that's both ACH and Fedwire services. So so the plain old boring old U.S. dollar piece. That, that the businesses in this industry were suffering from because, of course, US based businesses need to be able to pay their vendors and pay their employees, et cetera, in dollars. Uh, And and of course, pay their withholding taxes in dollars, right? So that is the basic building block. And then from there, we, we, we have uh, been approved by the state of Wyoming to issue, uh, to provide custody services as long as we check a number of final regulatory boxes, which are, which should be easy to check once we get there. And then also the the, the stablecoin-like instrument. It's not actually a stablecoin because it's actually a digital cashier's check. And you have to be a bank in order to be able to issue this under U.S. laws. You have to be actually a depository institution. So the the OCC trust banks, there were a few that were applied for. One was actually granted a trust charter. That's not considered a bank that could issue a, a token under the structure that we've proposed to issue ours. So we are just, just like with, with custody, we are approved subject to final check the box requirements from the state of Wyoming to go ahead and issue that. What we are waiting for is our federal approval at the Federal Reserve. And we are getting close to two years since we've given all of those business plans and detailed thousands of pages of documents, honestly, to the Federal Reserve, and we still don't have an answer from them yet.
1: Well, I was just going to say, Jeff, I mean, it's a great segue to the stablecoin stuff that is happening. And Jeff wrote a great recent feature called Snow Job about, you know, how the White House and the Biden administration are approaching stablecoins. I want to get your take on all that because there's an interesting divide, it seems to me, between the industry and the people who live and breathe this stuff and the uses of stable coins and everyone's going big on those. And then the average consumer who might have bought Bitcoin or ETH or even a meme coin like Dogecoin. And it seems to me that many of them are, are kind of unaware of the rise of stable coins.
3: Yeah. And, and stable coins are, are just a, a utility, if you will, within our industry. A, a, a lot of, of traders will use them, but we're starting to see more mainstream uses of stable coins as well, because the price volatility of underlying crypto It has scared away a lot of folks or a lot of traders just don't want to sit with an actual crypto token in their portfolio overnight, and they'd rather hold a U.S. dollar-like instrument. It's debatable whether stablecoins are actually U.S. dollars. We don't see very many of them redeemed very often. Uh, And indeed, that's why the proposal to do it through a bank is designed to make this go a lot more mainstream and and to focus on a different customer base, which is the mainstream Users, you know, businesses, corporate treasurers, Wall Street, traditional pension fund endowments, foundations—those sorts of things—none of them are involved with stable coins. Definitely, some hedge funds are, but but the tr- big traditional investors can't because they don't know what the legal structure of it is. And 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 so ultimately, we're we're going after you know that up the middle of the fairway market, but it's definitely vis a the the issuers it's a different game right that you know tether's in a different market than USDC than BUSD and you know these are all tokens that are that were created essentially necessity was the mother of invention it actually in, in some ways, was the lack of U.S. dollar banking services that gave rise to the, the, the stablecoin market in the first place. If, if the exchanges going back to 2015 had not been debanked, as, as Jeff, you pointed out in your article, it's possible stablecoins wouldn't have been invented. But what, what stablecoins really are is technology to settle a U.S. dollar faster, better, cheaper, more transparently, and with software. Right now, the the, the traditional payment systems in the U.S. are so antiquated, you can't use software to write payment instructions. And and this gets back to the world that I came from. And we have the former treasurer of Ford Motor Company working with us to solve a problem for the mainstream, which is that you can't get straight through processing for enterprise, say, say, supply chain systems, ERP systems. You don't get straight-through processing from those to the treasury management systems to the banks for payments and then back again. What you get is straight-through processing from the ERP system to the treasury system, and then there's a break because you have to send a flat file with your payment instructions to the bank, and then the bank overnight – sends you a flat file back that tells you which payments went through and which didn't, and then somebody in the corporate treasury world has to go deal with all the failed payments. It's extraordinarily inefficient, and the concept here is, let's figure out how to write software, so the erp system can talk to the treasury system can talk to the bank back to the treasury system back to the erp system this is not radical stuff okay but it is in in much of the of the developed world this has been going on for years that exact process but in the us because of the antiquated nature of the payment systems we've got the break and you don't get this straight through processing so being able to offer software based us dollar payments is actually going to be something pretty powerful. But I can tell you, we've got back to your point, you know, the bank lobby in Washington, DC originally was against all this. And then they did a 180 degrees and said, no, we want to own this. And you innovators, you're not allowed in, which is exactly the uh, the point of Jeff's article. I think also, the the flip side is that there are a number of folks in the crypto industry who don't want regulation at all. And we're going to see a split. In, but that's in the a pipe industry. dream, right,
1: Caitlin, at this point? The, well, the people who I mean, think the regulators will just kind of go away.
3: Well, they won't go away. That's that's for sure. And and of course, you know, there's a big irony between what we just saw with the LME with uh, with a regulated exchange doing a, effectively a bail-in, which you know that's happened in crypto a couple of times. And of course, people yell and scream and say that's criminal and they need to be regulated. But here we just saw the exact same behavior from a regulator regulated exchange. I digress. But but I think the <laughs> crypto industry is gonna is gonna split into really three camps. One is the camp that just doesn't want regulation at all, very committed to DeFi, very interested in just voluntary associations and um, voluntary means by which disputes get settled, no intermediaries whatsoever. And, you know, it, that that's the code of speech group. And, and they, they definitely are, are, are going to make some headway. They already have and I think you cannot, just like you can't ban Bitcoin, you cannot ban that, those types of structures. I think that will stay niche. The second group is, is those that want to be regulated in order to get to the mainstream large value markets. And then the third group is a small group of us, including custodia, that have been trying to do that for now almost two years and have gotten the Heisman from the regulatory process, <laughs> so to speak.
2: Wow, that's that's a lot to take in, Caitlin. I understood, I confess, about 80% of that. But one thing I think would help would be, let's have an example of, you know, I think we agree that blockchain technology is superior to the legacy financial system, but suppose I start a, a new wallet, crypto wallet company. I make a cool new wallet, and I've got various cryptocurrencies, but I also I have vendors. i got to pay my employees, I've got to pay the post office down the street who might want nothing to do with crypto. So if I understand right, I can show up at your bank and park my assets there and then use this new stablecoin to pay some of my more crypto friendly vendors and then also have a conventional like checking account to pay the the post office guy down the street is that a fair summary
3: basically with one huge caveat which is that we are subject to bank level know your customer and anti-money laundering and ofac requirements they are higher the bank requirements are higher than non-bank requirements and so we can't give accounts to literally everybody Every, we can only give accounts to those that that, that that pass the Know Your Customer anti-money laundering and other compliance checks. And then on top of that, we're, as a bank, required to do what's called customer due diligence. We're required to comply with a travel rule. We're required to do transaction monitoring. There's a whole list of compliance. Now, of course, what I just laid out applies to every US-based company. And frankly, most of the developed world does have those similar restrictions as well What's different in the United States is that the bank level compliance requirements are higher. Whether we agree with those laws and rules doesn't matter. They are the law and we are required to comply with them. So, but, but Jeff, to your point, that is exactly what we're trying to do. And the concept here is that once we get direct access with the Fed, we'll be able to offer customers, to your point, the ability to have both US dollars and we're starting with Bitcoin and Ethereum. We never, we may never go beyond those two because that's where the bulk of the demand is, of course, from the mainstream world. But that's the concept: is is seamless, seamlessly going back and forth, 24-7, 365 between dollars and digital assets for those that are customers and or meet the customer requirements
2: right but are you going to get access to the fed i recall watching a hearing in dc recently where senator lummis was grilling fed chair powell because basically they would not give uh, i think it was your company it was uh avanti as it was known they refused to give what's it called like a, a master account to let you you know bank at the fed in which case they sort of seem to be stimming you by simply doing nothing and is that going to get solved soon
3: i'm optimistic it's going to get solved soon stay tuned mm we uh it, it, <laughs> it's not solved yet
2: okay i i I know Dan's got some d c questions i mm-hmm. want to ask one more about stable coins. You saw a hedge fund made a big short on tether. What do you mm-hmm. think of that
3: well uh, when you dig into the reason for the short, it was a a bet by the hedge fund that the assets that back it are not worth par, and so therefore they're they're basically making the bet that you, that, that the dollar peg, if you will, at some point is going to break. I don't have a view on that. I don't know whether it will or not. I, I will ask one interesting conceptual question, which is stable coins trade like hot potatoes. The average tether trades about three times a day. And so they, the annualized velocity is give or take a thousand X, last I looked. okay. So most people don't sit with these. They are transactional And as a result, what's your real risk if this is not a savings instrument, it's a transactional instrument and it trades like a hot potato? That's a rhetorical question because one of the interesting things about putting a short position on that I've learned in my many years of traditional finance is you might be right about the underlying fundamentals, but that doesn't necessarily mean the market price reflects that. And so there is an interesting question that no one knows the answer to, which is, Even if you grant that there's not 100% reserves worth par that are backing those stablecoin liabilities, would that matter in the marketplace? No one knows the answer to that question. And I think if these were long-term instruments that people were trying to store value in, then, then it'd be an easier question to answer than... When you recognize that these are really transactional, most people only hold on to them for a relatively brief period of time. They trade at incredibly high velocity. And does the, does the fact that they're hot potatoes have an impact on whether that short position works out? We don't know the answer. And only time will tell.
2: And uh, last one for me: What if the hedge funds right? What if Tether does blow up? It breaks the buck, and there's a run on it. How bad is that? Would that be for the crypto industry?
3: Well, it's definitely not good <laughs> because Tether is, of course, you know, infrastructure and in, in, in stablecoins. I believe are about seventy percent, are one side of about seventy percent of the transactions in the crypto industry. But I will say, for those who are really hodlers, I've got a very long-term view, and very much am, am, am focused on. On on a a very, very long horizon. We're not building for short term here. The speculators are going to be hurt by something like that. But those of us that have very low time preference and are thinking generationally, look at that and say, that's a bump in the road. And, And I'm definitely more in the in the latter camp. Those kinds of, if there are hidden leverage bombs, which I suspect there are in the industry, those kinds of things are frankly we're better off flushing them out of the industry i don't i just don't know who and so i'm certainly not pointing fingers at who and where those leverage bombs are i'm 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 pretty confident that they that they exist and for those that have the long-term time horizons this is just a bump in the road and and, and really good riddance and i think you'll see if and when it happens, you'll see a number of of those of us who are who are the proverbial old timers, or maybe more accurately, those with low time <laughs> horizons, look at that and say, "Great, let's now now let's get back to the real work of building." And and now that we've flushed out some of the the fast money crowd,
1: Caitlin, I've got uh, two kind of cultural questions for you. You know, when you talk about all the inefficiencies in the banking system. And there are others in the industry who, who talk about that. It, it sounds like such a no-brainer. It sounds like, well, let's fix all these problems. It's so slow. It's so comically antiquated. And yet, as we know, and we talked a little bit about it in the banking world, but in, in D.C. and among lawmakers and politicians, there's in some cases just visceral reaction to crypto. I mean, we've been circling that topic, but I don't know if we drill down into why. Why do you think that certain people, whether it's politicians, in some cases it's more traditional Wall Street types. Now, as you mentioned, there are some traditional hedge fund folks who have done a 180 and they were skeptics and now they've said, okay, I'm ready to dip a toe in and they've changed their tune. But there are some folks who are just so anti and it still kind of puzzles me just how almost triggered they are by the idea Of bitcoin and cryptocurrency
3: so i think it breaks down into a couple of different groups it's the big big government crowd and the big the big business crowd and and that's why you see the strange bedfellows because the the more libertarian types are of course going to be against concentrations of power anywhere and the more progressive types are against concentrations of power in the big banks and big businesses so there's an alliance that can be formed between those Those who are true big government believers are going to be anti-crypto because crypto is not about centralization. It's about decentralization. And those, oftentimes you see those same folks being very anti-big tech. That's one of the big reasons why Facebook Libra got so much shade, and I think deservedly so. And then there's the big business crowd. Most folks will never admit that they're either big, big government or big business types, but look at what they actually do. Uh, and the big business types you know, protect the big banks and take an awful lot of, of donations from them. But it's so interesting. I saw a progressive law review article came out today. There's a movement among the progressives to get antitrust actions against the big banks going again. And there was an interesting article from, I think it was the University of Chicago Law Review just today and there's a real push, and in, in fact, you're seeing it in the in the bank regula- federal bank regulatory agencies. There's a real push to basically take away the power of the big banks and 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 block the big banks from getting even bigger through mergers, etc. And and I I agree with that, but I pushed back and also said, hey, there's some other antitrust things. If if, if antitrust is being raised again for the big banks, it's not just the the mergers that need to be reviewed. It's also the way the big banks price their products. They actually price lending to big corporations at a loss and they make it up in other products. But what does that do? That's, that's a kind of thing that makes big businesses even bigger because the small businesses don't get subsidized bank loans, but the big businesses do. Okay. So there's an unholy alliance there. And then, of course, back to the question that Jeff uh, wrote his article about. The snow job, if you will. Basically, you know, the big banks using the regulatory process to block out new entrants. It used to be that thousands of new banks were were chartered every decade. And in fact, it's only been a couple dozen. We went through about a 10-year period in the United States when no new banks were chartered whatsoever whatsoever. Okay, and so this is the kind of thing that creates concentrations of power. But the experience that Custodia is having with the long delay in getting access is indeed something that that antitrust officials may want to take a look at.
1: And uh, my second cultural question for you, you know, especially because of your background, we've been talking so much about kind of the the hardcore finance side of things and, and banking and helping companies with banking in D.C. What do you make of I guess you could call it the more, I'd almost say ethereal, but Web3, DAOs, NFTs, they're sort of, you know, a, a, not separate, related, but a second culture stream that has truly erupted in the last year or so of, of crypto types like that. And obviously, yeah. you're part of that, too, with your your Twitter persona. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I think all that experimentation is great. I I do consider myself a Bitcoin maxi, but a long-term Bitcoin maxi. It's interesting. You asked the question about, uh, of Joe Lubin. What's his second favorite token? And he said Bitcoin. So Joe and I would be reversed. And my, my favorite is Bitcoin. My second favorite is Ethereum. But, but that's, that's how I think about it. I, the experimentation that we're seeing, especially in smart contracts, is really powerful. And Bitcoin does one thing extraordinarily well. It's a tremendous, store of value token and useful in high value transactions not as useful in the type of smart contract type of applications that ethereum has been, has been useful for but I, I agree with the bitcoin developers that there's a security trade off in, in ethereum that that does give it more scalability and more ability to do smart contracts it is not as secure and so when you're dealing with a high value Transfer that—that that Bitcoin is is becoming especially useful for. You can transfer billions of dollars for you know a couple of dollars in fees. It's much more efficient than the traditional system, and it's faster, better, cheaper, and trackable. But it's not as easy to write software in order to do it. Whereas in Ethereum, it's easier to, to write software. So I, I, I support all this innovation. i I think it's great. Will will there be a lot of failures? Yes, but that's the the great aspect of capitalism is the creative destruction. And boy, these markets are, are <laughs> creating and destroying very fast in terms of the new protocols that are coming online.
2: That's a great summary, Caitlin, because uh, Dan and I are asked oft- frequently, um, you know, should I invest in this? Or is this a good investment? Yeah. And our answer is always, we have no idea, except for Bitcoin and Ethereum, we're pretty sure they're going to be here in 10 years, the rest of it, like, good luck to you, we will not endorse it. want to ask one more question about the big banks, and specifically about a big banker, Jamie Dimon, who's, of course, the CEO of JP Morgan. A very smart very powerful very influential and charismatic person but he's okay. also been he's it's hard to read him because he said outlandish mm-hmm. things about bitcoin and sort of <laughs> shit on it regularly and yet <laughs> it seems jp morgan kind of has its hands into crypto so can oh, yeah. i take us inside his strategy his tactics his brain what is up with jamie diamond
3: well it's uh it's interesting <laughs> oh gosh i could i could i could go in lots lots of different directions in this but one of the places i'll start is. Talk in your own book. When you get CEOs who are out there criticizing, meanwhile, they're actually involved in, in a market. You would think that that would pique regulators' interest. It hasn't seemed to, but you know, we saw it with Warren Buffett too, and he and Charlie Munger, you know, very critical of of crypto and then turn around and I think invested a billion dollars in a in a Brazilian neobank that is <laughs> serving crypto, right? So, I mean, it's just, you have to be so careful when you're in those positions, but I guess they get away with talking their own book so to speak, and sort of talking it down and at the same time, potentially being actively involved with it. But look, I mean, I think he understands that the old system is dying. It's going to fight to the death. Because a lot of banks cannot afford to do what he's done, which is hire hundreds of people and create their own crypto unit. And JP Morgan was one of the first. It's, it's really interesting because I, I've tweeted, you know, probably five years ago, Goldman Sachs invited me to speak at an event. And, and way back then, I tweeted about how Goldman, at the, er, in the early years of crypto, was the bank that was the most open to it. Culturally, there's something about Goldman that allows and fosters innovation. Whereas it, I did not feel that at my previous banks. And JP Morgan ended up flipping and becoming even more open to it than Goldman was. And, and, and you know, the retrenchment of Goldman on in, in that is, a, is is interesting. They had a desk, and then they closed the desk, and then they opened it up again. But when they did open it up again, they put, they put a very, very senior Partner, the guy who ran the repo desk, which is which is the the core desk of any big investment bank, in charge of the crypto market. So it's just so interesting that you know the different banks have had different approaches. But certainly they, they've been more involved, I think, all along than they've been given credit for. It's just that they were they were indeed out there saying, "Don't get involved in it if you work here." And I certainly had that that impression at Morgan Stanley. In the beginning, way back when I first got involved with it, I didn't, I didn't disclose it. I was afraid I'd get my head mm. chopped off right. for being involved with it. And then I finally, there was eno- enough critical mass to pop my head up. And the funny thing is, I think you guys all know this story. The chief technology officer of Morgan Stanley contacted me. This was 2014. So uh, quite a while ago now, contacted me and said, the board has asked me to make sure that I understand what this is. He found me on, a, on an internal forum. And I'm a little bit older than the average person, shall we say, in, uh, in crypto. And so I must have stuck out to him like a sore thumb. And he called me out of the blue and said, can you get up here and tell me what this is? And the board has asked us to make sure we don't miss it. And so he, he was great because I worked with him in a very small group. There were five of us between 2014 and 2016. And he was so skeptical and I loved working with him because he really forced me to learn and justify and understand where he was coming from. And it actually helped solidify my own views of especially Bitcoin, but, but crypto more broadly.
2: Love those insights into behind the scenes at the banks. Uh, and what you said about Goldman, too. Really quick question. Do you know what became of the man bun guy? Remember they brought in when Goldman went big on crypto, they had a guy with the man bun, and it sounds like they replaced him with the repo desk guy. So do you know what happened to that guy?
3: I don't. Um, I, and I never met any of the people there. I do know that I think they brought in, I think, a vice president, which is a mid-level officer of the bank when they created the crypto desk in new york and then they closed it that might be who you're talking about and then when they brought it back it was about six months later they put a very very senior person in charge of it so that's just an interesting little piece of history about their own ebbs and flows in their involvement with this industry
1: do you credit diamond with jpm as you said you know flipping goldman in terms of being warming up to crypto or was it sort of despite jamie diamond
3: you know, I don't know. I don't know the the dynamic of the different executives there. You know, if you look at the last decade, it's pretty clear JP Morgan won. <laughs> so, you know, look at the size of the expansion of its balance sheet, the expansion of market value. The perception was that Goldman was the winner because it's the stock that was added to the Dow, you know, et cetera. And it's always had a little bit more respect. I think the profit per employee at Goldman is quite a bit higher than at the rest of the banks. But look, JP Morgan, in terms of growth of the business and growth of the balance sheet, definitely won the last decade. It'll be Mm -hmm. interesting to see who wins the next decade. I have a feeling that it's not going to be one of those traditional ones. It's going to be, it's going to be one of the innovators that. You know, like a Coinbase getting a bank charter mm. that ends up winning the next decade of in in the banking wars, so to speak.
2: Just fascinating, Caitlin. So much to take in. Uh, we've been talking about Wyoming a lot, but just to end, let's do it this way. If someone does go to your great state, three things you have to do if you go to Wyoming.
3: Oh gosh, you, you've got to go to Jackson and Yellowstone. You've got to eat at. In Hartville, at Wyoming's oldest bar, which has a tremendous chef that moved out from Los Angeles and only ever serves prime steaks. It's kind of in the middle of nowhere, but foodies from all over the world come to it because it's the the best steak in Wyoming and Wyoming's oldest bar. It's called Miners and Stockmen's in Hartville, Wyoming, an old mining town. And what's the third thing? I would say you have to go. hike Lake Marie. That's something only the locals really know, because most people end up in Yellowstone and Grand Teton National Park. But if you really want a tremendous experience in nature where you're really probably not going to see very many many other people, go up and hike the snowy range, Lake Marie.
1: Nice. Jeff, we have to go back soon to do all that.
2: (laughs) Deal. I want to check out this oldest bar. It sounds like fun. Dan it's and I went awesome. to Cowboy Bar, but that's another story. Um, anyways, Caitlin Long, thank you so much for joining. Fascinating interview.
3: Thanks, guys. Good to see you again. Welcome back to Wyoming soon.
1: This has been GM from Decrypt. I'm Dan Roberts.
2: And I'm Jeff Roberts.
1: GM is a Decrypt podcast produced by Red Rock Music. Our executive producer is Red Yokum. Our associate producer is Emma Martins. And our audio engineer is Enrique Inahosa.
2: For more from Decrypt, go to decrypt.co or download our mobile app. Subscribe and review us wherever you listen, and we'll meet you back here next time for more crypto conversation. GM.